And everyone, it's Mission Critical. I'm sorry, Tom Cruise is not here. He's in the cinema now. Don't worry about that. Forget that. But this is equally exciting. Parachuting into the data service and stuff. Tom Cruise has been there. We're going to take you there too. Elon Musk, you ain't got nothing on this. All right. 20 seconds. All will be revealed. If you're still on that revving model, guys, you've got to turn it off now and go home. Before you go home, actually watch this. All right, five seconds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this live stream special. I'm so happy that you are here. Get your glass of wine, your coffee, whatever you're making, that carbonara or whatever. Don't burn it, but pay attention because this is going to be really interesting. Now, two, three years ago, I was knocking around in pajamas in Clubhouse. And in Clubhouse, you can meet a random, eclectic mix of people. And unfortunately, you have some awesome professionals there. And one of them was actually my guest today, who is Mohammed Khan at Stephen George and Partners. How are you, Mohammed? Are you okay? Uh I'm good. I'm good, Stephen, and thanks for the warm welcome. It's been a while. Clubhouse, yeah, yeah, good old it, days. Yeah. Clubhouse was back in the day, but however, now we've gone from talking on audio to in-person on video. While Clubhouse hasn't done that well, a lot of things have happened, isn't it? And in the technological world, it seems that we're not in short supply. We need more and more of these servers, chat GPTs going and all this stuff. Now, Mohammed, you have a work in a very interesting sector, which I find absolutely fascinating, called mission-critical buildings. However, first of all, Mohammed, for anyone that hasn't met you, or unlike me, has spoke to you on Clubhouse, can you let us know a little bit about who you are, first of all? Yes, no problem. I'm a traditional architect, born and bred in Bonnie, Scotland, where I got my, my degree up in Glasgow, and managed to travel jump over the wall down to London. I've been in London for 15 years now. Initially thought, pack my bags, come down, six months in London, and it's been 15 years. And plan to stay here for a long time and keep building and designing data centers. Brilliant. I, I must confess, before we move on, my plan was to get my part one in, in, in London and then maybe get a job back in, in Cardiff. So it I've been there before, and that's really interesting. So thank you. And before we move on as well, so Stephen, George, and Partners, while you head up the data center team, do you want to tell us a little bit about the company, set the scene of what, where you're running your sector? Yeah, Stephen, George, and Partners, as an architectural practice, we have been around since 1970, so 53 years. And our head office is based in Leicester. We have five offices across the UK. We work in nine sectors, so a lot of people don't know that are from logistics, transport, healthcare, education, mixed use, life sciences as well. And I joined at the latter part of 2020, and it was kind of like near the end of the COVID period. So it was like, are we back to office? Are we not back to office? So that whole time of me joining Stephen Jordan Partners was quite surreal and new to me. My interview was through Teams which was quite, quite unusual. But yeah, I joined and basically established the London office. And yeah, since 2020, we 
at a nice office, a small office in Shoreditch, where we roll out uh, sectors such as data centers, industrial logistics, we're doing about light rail, commercial interiors, and healthcare for us. Yeah, it's going good. Nice. Now, data centers in particular, I can see that more and more people are using their phones. It makes sense to me that it's a growing sector. However, it could be fair, Mohammed, that not every architect, when they study in architecture, initially thinks that they will be specializing in a sector which maybe isn't seen as others. And before, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you love about that. But first of all, how did you get into doing data centers? I think for me, it was a sector by chance. I was kind of in the kind of era where, you know, when you're doing architecture, you feel like I want to do something different. So I got into project management and a bit of kind of construction management as well, which was very valuable experience. But then I felt that I was very kind of employer side, thinking like a client and getting a lot of experience from other side of the fence. And I was like, I need to get back into architecture. And just using my network, I managed to obtain a job that got me into the industrial logistics and data center sector. And I love technology. So it was due to the love of technology that I got stayed in in that sector sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it's for us, it's booming. And it's one of the the few recession-proof sectors because you'll always need data storage and processing. Yeah. Yeah, nice. And I agree. It's through the throughout the pandemic when I was trying to survive myself, it seems that the clients that were doing really strong were practices which had worked in data centers because throughout the pandemic, the retail was has been put on hold. The, the hotels were not sure what they were doing. However, the data centers, it was business as usual. So that's really interesting to hear. Now, what I would like to ask as well, because you're right, initially people can maybe fall into it, but now it's become more and more of a sector that people are getting aware of. The kind of people that I thought would fit in really, Mohammed, into data center sectors could be people that like technical challenges, people who do, as you say, the project management. How are you going to get all this power into the sector? But from your point of view, what do you think really makes someone fit in really well in the data center sector? Yeah, I think primarily you need to have a lot of patience and a love for the profession. You have to love architecture, the all the great bits of it as well. And for me, the sector, you have to have knowledge of te- technical coordination these buildings are if you look at them they do look very great yeah. and what we're doing is we're doing our best to make them more aesthetically pleasing more design orientated so that's where as architects have got this kind of struggle with the MEPs and the structure engineers and the clients here by making them a lot more attractive i think if they are more attractive, then they can be a lot more appealing to the next generation and the up-and-coming young students. But having that knowledge of technical coordination, awareness of regulations, and even sustainability as well, the net carbon yeah. zero targets that we're trying to do, you'd be surprised at how much we have to consider to make them more sustainable. People do see the negative side of it, of water usage, energy usage, but we are focusing on sustainability having that love for those elements will certainly kind of help you in that sector yeah nice one and that make that makes a lot of sense and and for the benefit of the doubt that's not familiar with anyone's not familiar with a data center 
in, in your words, and I know that there are NDAs and we're going to be tricky here, but can you visualize what a typical data center is used for? Is it hosting websites? Is it hosting information of companies? Is it for large chat GPT, Microsoft bases and stuff? Not saying names, not saying your clients, but can you illustrate what is in a data center typically? Yeah, I think with the kind of high level space planning of a data center is you'll have your block for admin because you've yeah. got people that do work in a data center yeah. when it comes to the security and administration side. You have your racks and servers that house the cloud. So it's quite funny because I do a lot of mentoring with year nine students and also young architects as well. And when you speak to them, do you know what the cloud is? And a lot, yeah. of, very few of them know actually what the cloud is. So yeah. it's still server racks that you find in a building, in a data center. And so that's probably the second element. Then you've got the power and the generators and the chillers that actually maintain and manage it. So I think in a few words, it's a building that manages, stores, and processes data. So the more we use online shopping, streaming, e-commerce, banking, online banking, your Fitbit watches, the more and more is required for processing that data. And it's not slowing down. No. Yeah. You might have to start building data centers on top of data centers at some point. It does feel like it's going up. Now, I joked around earlier about NDAs, and of course, a lot of this stuff is can be quite confidential. However, before this, you kindly shown me a few images that we are actually allowed to talk about, which are in the public realm. So if you're happy with it, Mohammed, I'd like to bring yeah, up yeah. one or two images, and then you can just illustrate a little bit about, build upon what we talked about earlier, so you can decrypt and decode the building, because yeah. it's far from a shed with server racks in the field. As you say, they're much more advanced offices, hubs, server racks, everything. So let me bring up. So we've got the we've got this the website here again. So I'll bring up the link at the end for Stephen Georgian Partners. However, here's project number one. I don't know any of the details, so it is a little bit Tom Cruise. However, Mohammed, do you want to walk us through quickly this project? I think Tom Cruise would find it quite difficult to get into this building. Um, oh, really? He's not going to parachute on the top of this one? Fair enough. No, no. It took me 20 minutes last week to get into it. It's a bit, even though you're an architect, you still have to go through the right kind of protocols. It's just one of those things. But yeah, just using this project as an example, this was an existing industrial logistics shed. So yeah. it was actually designed for something like your DHL or your UK mail to process deliveries. And so it's a standard shed and we kind of occupied this at completion stage for the existing building and fitted this out as a data center. So what that kind of grill on the right hand side is an external gantry and that has internal multiple layers that's exposed to the elements of generators. So you've got these kind of rectangular white blocks that are generators and that is used for backup power. So in case there's a power cut to the data center, these gens kick in, really happens, but we have to have those provisions in because of the, because of the assets that we're managing, you can't yeah. have that loss of data. And then within the gantry, you'll have a series of battery rooms that help with the oh, backup wow. storage and fluctuating power, a set of chillers that help with the cooling 
And beyond that, within the main building is the kind of core of the building. And that is mainly like the data halls and the cooling kind of elements in the offices as well. So very, even though, you know, these are secure campuses, once it becomes a data center, we have to think about additional security and anti-tail gating gates and things like that. As part of the kind of feasibility and the planning stages, a lot of this has to be kind of implemented in as well. So I think that makes complete sense. While we're talking, we got one or two fans in the audience. Jason Ball, previous also Clubhouse alumni. Yeah. While it was there, maybe Clubhouse is not using the data centers, but there's a lot of others that are. And uh, James Ricks adds, a data center is home to where the internet lives. Thank you so much, James, for sharing that as well. I really appreciate it. Now, Mohammed, I am driving this and this presentation probably very badly so i'm just gonna skip ahead a little bit and you tell me if you want me to stop on any particular page here but i can see there's some nice renders from the outside and also i noticed that this you've one. got yeah you've got it's quite actually quite big isn't it my goodness yeah this building is approximately about 150 or so thousand square feet and to make it financially feasible for the client we add an additional mezzanine level in the internal warehouse. And if you can imagine with the, with additional floors and just racks, there's a lot that we have to think about. Yeah. The existing steels have to be considered loadings. So I think that's the challenge that we have as architects, that it's a sector which is very MEP-led because you're thinking about the servers and the coolings. But like any sector, I feel that architects have to be the first ones in and the last one out because you have to think yeah. about the external shell, the permitting, the, the planning constraints, and then also the inside as well when it comes to the usage, the fire regulations. So I think that image there, the third one, it had the, sorry, the one after that. Yeah, you can see the kind of the thin rectangular strips on the bottom. That's the generators, which is very kind of illustrative. Mm. And the top level, you've got the chillers. But they are very power-hungry buildings as well. They are built where there's power availability. For this job, we had to add two additional substations. So that was something that was an after element that we had to consider as well. Nice. There's, yeah. Jason had one technical question, probably around safety, talking about do they have sprinklers? Would the data center of all the servers have that something above them? I would have imagined it would suck the fire out of the airport. Hey, yeah, it's a good point. How do you, is there like a total different rules then, Mohammed, on, on on safety in these areas which store a lot of data? Yeah, good question from Jason. They have a, a water mist system in the ones that we use, but in terms of fire protection, everything's compacted off for two reasons. One is for the safety of the assets and the other one is the safety of the people. They're very low occupancy buildings. Right. I mean, so you have to take into account the low occupancy as well, and that dictates the fire strategy. Using one example of staircases under building regs, you'll have 30 minutes, which is enough to comply with part B. But in this building, we go with 90 minutes and the data holds are 60 minute compartments. So it, it's an uplift on fire regulations to ensure that that the occupiers and the users of the building can leave safely as well. And as well as the kind of service racks being protected as well. So yes, we do have sprinklers as well as fire compartment walls. 
Wow, okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's quite interesting because I know you specialize in data centers. Jason in the audience specializes in nuclear power plants. So it's interesting, the utilitarian architecture, which is an art form in its own really, isn't it? Like, how do you do all this to solve these complicated problems? Because let me tell you, if suddenly people who are searching on a search engine or uh, on a social media platform, and there's a bit of an outage, suddenly it's a very big problem, isn't it? So it it makes a lot of sense. These things cannot fail, I'm guessing, and I have to have a lot of contingencies. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they, they tend to have a lot of contingencies, and that's where you have the various tiers of data centers. And when you are going into a search engine, you have the kind of that automated letter that comes up, and it can get to... 99.9997 or 99.9998 these are very kind of efficient buildings and you have your various web search companies or multi-billion retail companies that depend on the data and, and yeah. the processing power so for them that it's it's the revenue so they have to be very efficient building sort of thing and they're regularly checked as well like the the plant is maintained the servers are always maintained so it's it's just one of those things that Things have constantly been reviewed as well. And I've I've also read that there's a data center that has been used by a software company in the Nordic countries that actually self-diagnoses itself. Wow. So it, it's kind of omitting even part of human interference where, again, it's using AI and machine learning as well, where a data center can actually cure itself. So if there's a snag in the server or whatever it is, it has yeah. the capability to think and process and cure itself. So we're actually thinking that how much human interaction are you going to have in these buildings? Uh, are they going to be are they going to be dark buildings where machines and robots and droids just kind of take over and process your data sort of thing? Yeah. So interesting. It's, it's very interesting. I won't go off on a tangent, but I did have see a very interesting AI chat talk at the moment where you know when does the AI get so aware? that suddenly a tsunami heading for their data center means extinction, that suddenly they're going to protect themselves. So it is very interesting that actually when you talk about that stuff, the data set that becomes its own kind of self-propelling living entity. I'm happy to move on and I've got a few questions, but do you have anything crazy to add to that or are we happy to move on? Yeah, I think think for me is that every day is a a, a learning day for us. Technology is moving so fast that... I find that what you've got today can be out of date in a year's time. So as architects, we just have to be on our toes. I agree. And the AI can't do the architect's role. So that's why you're here and we're getting your insights at the moment. So I appreciate that. Last thing before we move on, James Rick says, you need to consider a very early smoke detection system as well as Vista. With some fire suppressor systems, you need to make the true of the DB rate and the sprinkler heads as anything above... 120 decibels can nuke the hard drive of the server. So thank you, James, for illustrating a technical solution to a complicated problem. We can't have the hard drives dying. The data will be lost. That yeah. It's very interesting. Now, Mohammed, you sent over another project that and when I was looking at it, and it, we can see it from the outside, but in particular, you sent through an image which was quite interesting. And what I wanted to talk for is illustrate maybe what it's like to work in these projects before you said the kind of person that is really it would suit. However, what I'd love to know is it, it makes sense that 
data centers lend itself to projects being modeled in BIM, I would have imagined as well. What's the actual work process like in the office in terms of the tools you use to build these complicated buildings? Yeah, other than being stressed 24-7. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Apart yeah, from uh, that, what are you using uh, when you're pulling your hair out? Yeah, yeah. These jobs, these jobs 100% have to be coordinated in 3D. Again, we tend to have three disciplines at stage two or three feasibility. So as architects, we have a, an MEP and a structures engineer. And what we tend to do is everyone kind of works on their elements individually. Yeah. And then it's down to the architects to support with the structure coordination and MEP coordination as well. And for us, it works and things like learning about new ways of working as well from the MEP because they'll come up with these components that they used the year before and they say, you know what, it needs to be more sustainable. So it's going to be half the size, but we need to add this attachment onto it to make it to, to filter the CO2 emissions or something like that. So we're always kind of learning. And if that means that it's slightly bigger or elongated than what it was before, then architecture, we need to make it work as well. And we tend to, we use Autodesk Revit. That's quite a well-known software and I recommend all the youngsters leaving university to, to use that's the first thing that, that we actually look at. And mm. we tend to, we can work in the cloud as well. We've done that before, which is quite good where we can work on one model, but, but yeah, Re Revit is a well-known platform to kind of work in coordinate. I think the challenges that we have is sometimes that you do get information in PDFs and in CAD, and that has to be translated in 3D. So again, that's not just in data centers, but it happens in other sectors as well. But yeah, a complex building like that, it has to be definitely done in 3D. And it's nice for the client as well. When the Before the building's finished, we do a lot of, we use VR and, and AR technology as well. So you can put the goggles on uh, with the client and navigate through the data halls and they can see the server racks. So they can actually see what they're getting before it's built, which is always nice. Yeah. It's like buying a car. So that's it. That's it. And yeah. it makes complete sense. And I think as well, I get I, one of the strongest arguments I've seen for why perhaps Revit could be difficult for certain projects, especially it's a retrofit building. I know it's getting easier and easier, but for example, it would make sense, especially with so much is going on that it's modeled in Revit. What I was going to say though, is on the theme of this is when the architecture social, we talk a lot about getting jobs in industry. And Omar, while we were talking, has said that he once interviewed, let me read it. He, I, Omar says, I once interviewed for a practice looking for someone to work at data center projects. They were looking for someone with previous distribution experiences. Apparently it lends itself working well in data center and has transferable experience. Do you feel it's true? And in what way is it similar to the typology aside from the obvious scale and layout of the building. In essence, Omar's, I think, say that people, someone hiring for data centers was looking for someone with logistic experience. In your experience, Mohammed, what do you look for on your team then when you're hiring people perhaps at different levels? Is that important to you or are there many things that you look for in the person to work on your team? I think if the person has the same or similar sector experience, that's a bonus. I think nowadays, yeah is very challenging if that person doesn't have that sector experience it's not a deal breaker we still do consider that candidate yeah. what i personally look for beyond the software is the culture 
that that person can bring. For us, culture, unity, trust, transparency, respect is so important. Can you kind of communicate with your colleagues? Can you work independently? Are you comfortable to talk to clients? Things like teaching a new staff member, the sector is the easiest part, I think. I think the difficulty can be is the mentoring and getting them culturally tangible to us sort of thing. But yeah, that's my kind of take on it. I think for me at the moment, it's all about kind of culture and having that ability to work in a team sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's a bonus. However, you're right. If people are interested in the sector, then you're open-minded. And now maybe building upon that while I've got you here, because, you know, you're running a team, you're effectively the hiring manager as well as doing all these crazy buildings. I'm sure you get a lot of applications and especially part two or recent architect, that kind of area, Mohammed. Is there anything that comes to mind that sticks out for you when you're hiring that you think, oh, this person might be really good for my team apart from the sectors they worked in? Does Is it gr- people that grab your attention? They have technical aspects in their portfolio. They show the Revit or is it more than that? You want to see something in particular? Yeah. What happens with with Stephen Jordan Partners is that the CVs and the portfolios will come through to our H department and then yep. they'll come to me. Now, the way I look at it is that the fact that it's came through HR department and came to through me probably shows that you meet Revit, you can use it. You're probably at that level. What sticks out for me is the interests and the hobbies. I'm a bit yep. old-fashioned, but I was talking to someone about one of my... Uh, colleagues does paragliding in east eastern europe which yeah. i found that was a bit extreme but it's nice to talk about these things it's nice to have someone with that kind of hobby so for me it's all about what's different about them what's their kind of usp because i know they can use Revit, i know they can use autocad and photoshop and all these kind of various standard platforms it's how they're going to fit in i'd are, do they also want to grow in the company though? Because our company yeah. at the moment is all about growth and technology. Are they willing to embrace technology? Are they willing to go that extra mile and grow as well? So it's just trying to understand that if it's a part two, do they want to do their part three? If it's a part three, do they want to progress to a project architect or a principal? And, and also, are they willing to mentor others as well and do a bit of reverse mentoring as well, which is, again, something that we promote in the southeast um yeah it's those little small things yeah it's it's nice that actually i know i'm not saying that people did thought there were barriers going into data centers but if anyone did think oh haven't worked in the data center i'm not too sure it's quite nice you debunk that if anyone's open for the challenge then they can jump on in which is really great and you've had a lot of compliments coming in here or people talking about what you've said, Jason also adds that behaviors are critical and that you have similar sectors as well. I've got an interesting quick one that Canberg has asked, actually. My goodness, we're getting a lot of interaction tonight, which is great. Makes my job easier and keeps us on our toes. But Canberg, he asks, maybe I touched upon it earlier with the AI, he says, as we become more connected to web, e.g. AI, naturally, there'll be an increase in data use. What is the projection for growth of data centers in the next 10 years? Now, Mohammed, like you said, this space is moving so fast, so we're not going to hold you to this. 
but in your imagination or how it's yeah. going, it, do you think it's a case of 10 years or is it going to be crazy in five years? Or do you have any thoughts upon where things could be in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think at the moment it's, it can be very unpredictable. But I think from what people predict, it's it happens. It, there's a lot more happening. I think from what I'm seeing, and the probably best example to give is when I'm from the VHS era, and if someone was talking about Netflix that time, you'd be like, this person's mad. They're not going to be yeah. streaming on our phone and watching series on our phone. I think from what I'm seeing, the architecture is going to be totally different. And mm. right now we're seeing the architecture getting smaller. And it's because the we're finding that the servers and the chip power is increasing. So where you've got existing buildings and you're refurbing, the, there's a lot of fallow spaces being created. So you actually can insert a lot more IT white space. So that's one of the things that we're finding, that the architectural element is decreasing. So what you might find is that the actual physical data center power to power in the next five years will be a lot smaller because you'll get a lot more storage in a smaller space. But the other things that we're seeing is that micro data centers as well. So right. you're seeing these little pods or container units that house small power supply and storage of data server racks. And they're a lot closer and they're around the cities as well. So they're bringing their almost kind of booster data center closer to the end user, as well as that technologies advanced where we're using submarine technology as well. Again, another web search company was has created the submarine technology DCs and embedded them in the North Sea to see what that kind of technology would be. And it's actually proved to be a lot better because there's less human interaction. There's less error in dust and things like that. So these are the kind of different designs that I'm seeing. But yeah, it's very difficult to predict 10 years, I think. So we're, we're trying to look at it from a five-year probably yeah. plan at the moment. Yeah, I reckon because... Like you said, or even you look at mobile phones, when the first iPhone came out, it's a revolution. And like you said, it's the same size, or they try to make it smaller, more more powerful. So it's very interesting, like you say, that they were, there is the new data centers, but then there's also refurbishing an old one. That would make sense. And of course, I'm not sure if we work them or not, but I always think of Canary Wharf. Like I'm very aware that all those banks have their own data centers. And I imagine like Lloyd's, it's going to be pretty old if it was when the building was built. So there's that refurbishment as well. And is that something then that you've done it or do you, have you focused on more new builds as well as refurbishments? Yeah, we've done, I mean, we've done a few where we've, like I said, an existing logistics shed that has been refurbed into a data center. A couple of mm. the jobs that we've also looked at where, unfortunately, we have either an industrial logistics shed or a data center that has reached its end of life. Right. And as sustainable you want to be, it just works out commercially more feasible to demolish the building down down and dispose the, the yeah. components responsibly somewhere and build a fresh new data center. You can be as sustainable as you want, but sometimes it just works to build new. And again, it's using the VHS example. You're not going to plug your Netflix USB in a, US, in a VHS video. It's just some of the components are just out, outdated, unfortunately. And when we've looked at new builds. New builds, you're seeing a lot of new technology. 
again, it's a lot of it's happening outside yeah. of kind of main city area where you've got more land and power connectivity as well. Yeah, it makes sense because I've I haven't done it for a few years, but I've built a lot of computers. It used to be one of my hobbies, and I still do. But if you've ever been on an old computer compared to today, it's a lot easier. And basically, that analogy of what you're saying is that basically you couldn't refurb the old computer because half of it's redundant. So yeah. it's as well, you got to buy new chassis and everything and build it from the ground up so i can relate to that i've got one more question from the audience on this theme before i'd like to bring it back to steve and george and partners and you're i got you don't have to tread the line anymore about oh my goodness i gotta say i don't want to say about a candidate a client oh you have yours or so what the question was is do be most big tech companies outsource or do they have their own mission critical teams? I have seen multiple architects open to tech companies, but I'm not sure if they're considered as client reps or if they are in-house designers. So very interesting question. Are you starting to see Mohammed more roles for architects like yourself, client side, or is it very much that tra traditional architects or experienced architecture practices in this space are used, or maybe is it a combination of both? I think I can I can probably answer that in two ways. I think yeah. from what I've seen is that to build and be part of a data center construction team, a, a lot of these large tech companies have like frameworks. Yeah. So they put all their architects, PMs and QSEs in one pot and then they just pick and choose and then they roll out the kind of project. So they, it is a very kind of small click team sort of thing. Yeah. And it works because trust builds up between the, the stakeholders and everyone's kind of strengths and weaknesses and you work together and it's better for delivery. One of the things that I'm finding is that to help the data center companies, and this is not all of them, but I've noticed with some of them, they'll employ an MEP or they'll poach like an MEP consultant and they'll bring them in as part of their client side. So it gives them mm -hmm. a lot more knowledge, MEP. I've seen architects move from traditional architects roles to client-side data center providers, and then it gives them, the data center company, a lot more architectural knowledge as well. Then they've got someone in-house that can talk to them about planning and building regulations, etc. And then I've seen data center employer represents that I've moved to, MEP and architects firms as well. So it's you won't realize it's such a small community that people do kind of jump about a lot it's probably not sure if it's answered the question but i could see that had to answer that question where you've got the build and then you've also got the personal kind of career growth sort of thing as well no it you did do and it's interesting and it makes a lot of sense and i can see the role of an architect working in-house at a client who's going to be making a data center especially when they're so complicated might make your life easier as well. Who knows? It could be a welcome addition. What I was going to say, two-part question. So, of course, I want to know more about Stephen George and Partners, but just last one before we move on about that. We talked yeah. about the future, where you predict things are, but I would like to know what you're excited about at the moment in, in 2023 or looking forward. What excites you at the moment, Mohammed? What's exciting me at the moment? I think for me at the moment is a lot of my time at the moment is with SUP, Stephen Jordan Partners in London, and uh, we are very busy at the moment. A couple of things right. that I'm looking at is we're looking at Europe as well. So I didn't really speak about that, but there's a large market in Europe for 
industrial logistics and data centers and other sectors as well, such as transport infrastructure. I'm pushing through our various contacts, looking at opportunities in Europe as well. And just as the UK, the DC market is booming in key cities such as Spain, France, Italy, Germany. So for me at the moment, Europe and growth of the London office, but a steady growth, not too fast. Not too crazy. That's brilliant. And so I love it. You touched upon it earlier, but just to expand upon it slightly in terms of, so Steam Georgian Partners, we established they've been around for a good period of time, which is great. There's a lot you can learn from practicing architecture over a period of time. But can you paint a picture then of your London office? Our London office, it was, yeah, so end of September when I joined, yeah, it was quite, quite a strange way of finding an office. It was, again, working from home full time. We had a place, but we felt that we had to grow and be a a lot closer to the city. So we were originally towards Holborn and uh, the partners reached out and said, where do you think Mohammed? I said, you have to be in Shoreditch and that's where all the that's the life of Clerkenwell and all the kind of the RT area. So we, so our office is based at the back of Liverpool Street. Connectivity oh, cool. in London and outside London is, is really good. A, a lot there for client entertainment as well. So I, I was searching for a place and it was literally like, I don't know if many people experience searching for a flat, just going on websites, looking yeah. for a uh, Yeah, yeah. Did my spreadsheets and then we found a place and, and we went for a more sustainable approach by looking at, we call it pre-loved furniture as well, sustainable oh, furniture. Cool. So through a few of our suppliers, we used our internal interiors team, which are based in Leeds, and they supported us and helped me with the design of the furniture, the setting and the kind of planters and things like that. So it's all fitted out now. And we've been in that office for two years now, two years wow. and eight strong. So we're all full, Ooh. like I said, looking to grow. Yeah. Brilliant. Amazing. I think that if anyone wants to check out, they were at your website and I'll say it here. I know we're going to shut down after one or two more questions, but it's www.steven with a PH. Say PH. With me. Stephen yeah. with a PH and then george.co.uk. You mentioned you might be growing, which is great. How do people in terms of how do they get in contact with you, Mohammed? Can you tell everyone? I'm very much active on LinkedIn. I've, Stephen can, can kindly share my LinkedIn details. Please follow, reach out to me, connect. I'm best contact, contactable on LinkedIn. And yeah, happy yeah. to chat, talk, exchange ideas about architecture, about data centers. Yeah. No, I love it. Now, before you go, before I let you escape, because I know you've got a lot on, I normally love to do it a two-way thing because it's only fair that I've, because I've got to ask you lots and lots of questions that you can turn it around the table and you can ask me one or two questions on the fly that I would not have prepared for. And that could be about recruitment. That could be about the scene. That could be about the architecture social. That could be all about online. It could be about if I use AI or anything. Is, is there, do you have any questions that you'd like to uh, ask me? I, one of the things I do at Stephen Jordan Partners is that I co-run the EDI group, diversity group. And again, it's probably to have a chat to you about this and what your thoughts were. Our industry as itself, 
is very male-driven. Um, yeah. You can go and say and see, you can just see the numbers. Yeah. And one of the things that I found very empowering and very satisfying was that we had a, a design team meeting on site at a data center site last week. And the project architect that works for one of the DCs is a young lady, qualified architect. So I accompanied her, but we had four design managers at the DTM that were all ladies and the project director was a lady as well. And I was the only guy in the meeting. And I was yeah. like, wow, we've came a long way. So wanted to ask what's your thoughts about how the industry is changing and what yeah. can you do about it? Yeah, exactly. I think there's a few things coming up and which women in BIMs great. You've got women in construction, you've got now it, which is great. And I think that the industry is slowly stereotypic. People like to joke that the industry before used to be an older men's boys club or whatever with certain demographics. And I think we're moving away from that construction. I think empowering, empowering everyone really that wants to get stuck into it. I think it's the right way to go. And actually, I don't know whether it's a, a geeky thing from before or whatever. Or I think half of it with data centers is people don't know the opportunities there. No matter what back what background they are, I think that half of it will be campaigning for that. But what I do think as well, Mohammed, is that in architecture, less about backgrounds per se, but we all have in our heads when we design, when we go into it, that you want to be Renzo Piano or whatever, and there's that seductive quality. However, there is an art form, I think, in data center design and also how strong the sector is in terms of careers and the fact that it can give you a stable trajectory. You're never going to worry about, for example, the next COVID commercial offices are suddenly down the pan for a year and a half. Now it's getting better. I think that data centers as a sector is one of the strongest to be in and probably is because it's going up and up and because there's a shortage on it you're more likely in a stronger position as an architect to be remunerated more than maybe that an architect who's in a saturated sector or in one that's not in demand. So I think it's all about awareness and I think it's all about unpacking it. And I think that that's half the battle. But the other thing, which I think is bigger than gender, is actually the other thing in architecture is for maybe the architectural apprenticeship schemes as well. I think that opening yeah. up to people from all different backgrounds is going to be the next key. And you as a progressive hiring manager, you can influence that as well. But architectural apprentices is a new big thing. They're thinking of shaking up the, the how to become a qualified architect to make it shorter. Lots of people have a different opinion on that. But my, my feeling is that we need to encourage people from different backgrounds. And actually to do study architecture in 2023, it costs between 70 to 90 grand which I couldn't afford if it was me back then. So I think we have to look at things in a different way. What do you think, throwing that back to, do you agree on what I've said? Yeah, 100%. I got my degree from a traditional university, and it was the old structure where you study for four years, go out, do your one year, come back to do your postgrad, and then yeah. you do your one year again. And the thing is, it's such a long time without making any money. And I personally think that, the apprenticeship scheme works because yeah. it, it's a fusion between academic and professional practice. 
you can be in an office and you can understand how an office works. Whereas if you're studying for four, five, whatever years, you're doing all these lovely drawings, but you don't understand how an office works. Now, we actually had a work experience student in last week and she learned Revit for the first time. And she did it for oh. a week and she said, you know what? I loved it because I learned Revit. But I, she could actually hear the kind of non-design bits of how an office was running. She was hearing me talk about fees and contracts and site issues. And that is what they don't teach you, I think, at university. So, yeah, I, I think it is certainly us as a profession going out to universities and having that honest engagement with them as well. And the other thing is that if we also reach out to the parents and speak to them about having that chat with your children that do you want to kind of get into the built environment? Can you, do you want to be an architect? Because there's so much you can expand into as well. I'm seeing youngsters that are getting into BIM, getting into CGI, getting into kind of digital automation as well. So you're not just mm -hmm. limited to one thing as well, but it's, yeah, it's definitely, I think, for me, I'm seeing it's growing for the best. I think so too. I think that even in the last two to three years as well, I think people's attitudes on working in the sector has become less resistant because I think initially it could be that knee-jerk reaction. You've been thinking you're going to be doing the next, I don't know, amazing tower and, and your reaction would be to go towards that dream for most people. But I think now, especially when you've got good companies like yourself, good employers, you have the work-life balance, but you can see the challenge in it as well and how that technology has evolved. I think it's captivating people's attention. And if, Mohammed, the last time someone's watched this and they thought, this is interesting for me, that you can find you on LinkedIn. They can see your name here, Mohammed Khan, and uh, you can find him on LinkedIn. Mohammed Khan, if you type in... Miami can at Stephen George and Partners on LinkedIn. You can find yourself or data centers as well. Is that the best way to get in contact with you at the moment then? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Please like, share. I'd also follow Stephen's architecture social as well. Oh. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. Yeah. It's been two years in the making and in two years as well. I'm sure you can talk to us about how the technology's changed and we'll have you back on and then we can compare the, the beautiful data centers that you've shown today compared to the ones which will, I don't know, be the next wave. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate no, it. No, Mohammed, stay on the stage. I'm going to I'm gonna end this in a second, but thank you in the audience for joining us. And there's more content coming. I think I've got a schedule on tonight, but tomorrow we'll be going into the metaverse. It might actually be hosted in one of Mohammed's data centers. <laughs> I, we, I, we wouldn't know, and I wouldn't be able to tell you if I did, but have a fantastic evening and I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.